Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, January 16th, we are studying John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Today's text records the first of Jesus' signs in the Gospel of John. Our Lord changes water into wine at the wedding at Cana. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Scott Murray. Pastor Murray serves at Memorial Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas, and he is the third vice president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Pastor Murray, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good morning, Pastor Apple. It's, of course, always a joy to be on the air with you. As we get started today, Pastor Murray, let's talk a little context. We're starting John chapter 2 today. What should we know about the gospel and the preceding context to help us with today's text? Right. Um, first of all, the, the, the second chapter fits into the whole picture of John's gospel. Um, again, at the end of the gospel, we find out what John wrote it for. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So first of all, um, the whole Gospel of John isn't really a biography of Jesus. It is uh, Jesus' spiritual odyssey, uh, which leads the people of God into fellowship with him, fellowship being a very important uh, concept in the whole Johannine literature, um, but also into his life as, as the life of all the people and uh, into him as the very water that comes down from God. Um, so, so this is this is in the larger background of of the uh, John chapter two section. Um, you have, of course, the narrower background uh, of chapters one, two, three, four, really, uh, where you've got uh, John's concepts of uh, the, the passing of the days, we, we tend to jump over these, you know, on the next day, Jesus did so-and-so. Oh, well, fine. That's next day. But in, in a biblical pattern of thought, uh, the pattern of the days is extremely important. So here with, with Cana, you have on the day, the third one, and, and John's, I think, quite intentional about putting it that way instead of saying on the third day. Mm. Uh, we'll talk about that. So that's important. And then um, you get it, a nice connection uh, with chapters three and four, where in, in John chapter three, then you have St. John the baptizer talking about Jesus as the bridegroom um, so that 
you know, we must celebrate in the presence of the bridegroom. And then John goes on to say, and I, John, must decrease. He, Jesus, must increase. So Jesus is conceived of in John's gospel as the bridegroom uh, of his people. And that's a significant concept when we come to the wedding of Cana. All right. Well, that's a fantastic introduction. Let's go ahead and just jump into this text. This is John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. That's our text for today. That's John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So, Pastor Murray, you, you mentioned in your introduction that the third day, or the day the third one, there's significance to this. Certainly for this text, and, and even for the larger context, you, you mentioned that refrain of, of sorts that John's been giving us, the next day, the next day. Uh, talk about this sequence of days that John is setting up for us. Sure. So it probably has at least three Old Testament connections. You have to remember that John begins his gospel, NRK in the beginning. Well, that ought to have some very clear echoes to anybody who knows the Old Testament, because this is the very first words of the Pentateuch in the beginning. Um, So in this sense, John is doing um, not really a rewrite, but a retake on the creation and all that follows it. And so one of the things here is you get the intimation of the third creation day. Um, uh, The way John actually writes the third day uh, fits with with how exactly it is put in the Greek, um, uh, the Septuagint of the Pentateuch. Um, So on the third day, God created and so on. There are two other uh, Old Testament intimations, first of of which is that the the, uh, Ten Commandments were given by God on the third day on Mount Sinai. And then you also have the sacrifice of Isaac um, on Mount Moriah on the third day. So you have the connection of God speaking to his people uh, and in that way, giving them his law. Jesus will take that law, uh, fill it to the brim, so to speak. We'll talk about that later, I'm sure, uh, and and change it into something else. Um, And then also you have the sacrificial context 
of the death, uh, uh, the potential death of Isaac at the hands of his father, Abraham. Uh, and then God, of course, rescues both Abraham and Isaac by sending uh, the sacrificial ram caught in the thicket. Well, already John the baptizer has called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in the previous chapter. So all of that is kind of in the larger uh, view with this Old Testament pattern of, of language uh, that you get here. So for John, we, we first read the, the, uh, the account of the, Can the Cana wedding and go, yeah, so he created some wine for some people that ran out. What's the big deal? I mean, this seems kind of frivolous. But the way John puts it in the context uh, of the Old Testament and the rest of his gospel should alert us to um, some deeper things there. Mm. Well, so with this being the third day and the, the sequence of, of creation, just looking in chapter one, you know, with the number of, so if, if we think of the first day when we hear the testimony of John the Baptist, the being day one, perhaps. And then mm -hmm. when he first says, behold, the Lamb of God, that's the next day. So that's a day two. There's another next day in, what is that, verse 35? And then another right. next day in 43. So that's like four days in chapter one. And then if you get the third day, if you're still counting along, that makes this day six. I mean, is, mm -hmm. is that the, I, so it's like a, a new week of creation or a renewed creation is kind of what John's trying to invite us to see in Jesus? Sure. And, and again, if, if you take that order and, and use it that way, then you get uh, Adam and Eve being created on the sixth day, whom God joins together um, in, in, um, in Genesis. So, um, so there's all these really interesting connections uh, in, in, this, uh, in just these few words. Okay, well, let's let's go that direction then. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana. If again, if we're we're going with the Genesis one connection, we're on day six of a new creation. There was a wedding in Genesis one and two. Here we've got a wedding. Let's let's talk a little bit about the significance then that Jesus is going to do his first sign at a wedding of all places. Right. So first of all, of course, you just simply get. Jesus accepting marriage um, as a good and blessed gift from God, um, that which has its source in the original creation pre-fall. Uh, so, so that's you know that's sort of right off the bat. But then you have to remember the Old Testament connections between God and his and and his people, so that God Himself becomes the bridegroom and his people become the bride. And of course, this is repeated by St. Paul really in Ephesians 5 when he talks about the relationship of husband and wife, Christ and church. Um, the flip side to this idea of God marrying his people uh, is, is the idea that uh, the Old Testament people abandoned God, became adulterous toward God, and took up uh, sexually with uh, false gods, the gods of the Canaanites and the people around them. Um, and then, of course, you have to remember that you have the story of Hosea and his bride, where she's a prostitute, and God insists that he remain faithful to her and chase her, 
and, and love her no matter what. Well, what's that? That's God himself. And so uh, Jesus is coming to this wedding as the archetypal bridegroom uh, for, for his people. And of course, intriguingly, he goes to a wedding, we're introduced to his mother, we're introduced to the servants, we're introduced to the, uh, the toastmaster, and we never hear of the bride or groom. <laughs> you know, well, why is this? Because John's ordering the material so that he can make a point about Christ, the bridegroom of his people. Uh, this is this is the bridegroom that he wants to emphasize in this particular pericope. Mm, that's a really important point. I don't know that I'd ever really paid that much attention to the fact that you don't ever meet the bride and groom. I mean, there's that they have no wine, I suppose, that I guess the, the they could refer to the bride and groom, but you certainly never learn their names and they don't really figure into the the account other than when the master of the feast calls the bridegroom and speaks to him. But right. yeah, to focus on Jesus as the true bridegroom, I think is, is a fantastic thing. And, and certainly John seems to be, be doing that here in chapter two. I also mm-hmm. appreciate what you were talking about at the very beginning, you know, just the fact that Jesus goes to this wedding he he simply accepts this as a given that that a man would leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and the two would become one flesh i mean this this even shows up in the the rite of holy matrimony in lutheran service book where where the pastor says our lord blessed and honored marriage with his presence and first miracle at cana in galilee so even even i mean and all the 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 theology of christ as the bridegroom this is huge scripturally speaking as you were laying it out but even that just what seems to be perhaps a simpler point is very important that jesus loves marriage i mean i think it's i and particularly in our world today i think that's an important thing to to notice sure and and the other thing you get here of course matthew mark and luke all give us the quotation a man shall leave his father and mother and so on uh, john doesn't and so, but you get it at the head here at the wedding of Cana. The other great thing about this is that uh, Jesus works what John will call the, <clears throat> excuse me, the primary of his signs. And again, we look at this and say, this is kind of frivolous. Why, why the big deal about some wine at a wedding? Um, but there's several things to be said. Number one, uh, what Jesus does isn't frivolous. Number two, his concern is not for himself, whether he looks uh, frivolous or weak or uh, downtrodden or defeated or any of those things. That's the theology of the cross. But what benefits those who are around him, especially um, this bride and groom who would have been really in some social trouble of significant proportions if they had in fact simply run out of wine and had no more. So Jesus is concerned about these people um, on a very basic day-by-day life struggle uh, level. Mm. And so we see Jesus at his best um, offering this wine. The other thing, of course, is he's he is the God who is willing to celebrate with his people. Um, you know, a, a lot of the um, caricatures of Christianity um, are that Christians are a bunch of black-wearing Puritan stick-in-the-muds who are just simply trying to destroy people's fun. Um, but the fact is that God's not party to that. 
especially in his son Christ, who's perfectly willing uh, to party with people. And indeed, you get that in the Gospel of Matthew, where he goes off and parties with Levi um, and the other sinners uh, there at his home. So um, our God is quite willing to party with his people. Um, and indeed, the giving of wine uh, is a sign of um, unity in the community. It's a sign of fellowship uh, between God and his people. And now Jesus is the one who is providing that wine and in that way establishing uh, his people again by his becoming their bridegroom here at this wedding. Yeah, the the imagery of feasting with God, well, of eating with God, that's certainly a theme that you see in the other Gospels. Luke, I know, particularly likes to emphasize Jesus' table fellowship, and you you mentioned Jesus going to the house of Matthew— he goes to the house of uh, Zacchaeus as well, and and you know sometimes the the way the gospels put those things is is very simple, but I, I think you're right to you know fill our our minds in with the picture of a celebration. This is what's happening. It's a celebration. Think about what the what the father does in the the parable of the prodigal son, as it's often called in Luke 15, of the the great feast that he throws. Here you see Jesus quite literally doing that at this wedding with these people. Talk talk more about that that, that historical background of the wedding. You know, it, it says in John two verse one, on the third day there was a wedding, and the mother of Jesus, Jesus and his disciples, they were there. And we know there's wine involved, but can you kind of help us get the right picture of what this means? I, we have a certain picture of what a wedding looks like today. What's the picture we should have for, for John two? Sure. So uh a Jewish wedding in those times would would have been a multi-day affair, as perhaps they still are in places like India in our time. Um, and so it just sort of kind of goes on and on in this continual celebration. Um, and so uh, the need for supplies continues throughout that whole period of time. It, there was a strong... Um, sense, cultural sense, uh, that appropriate food and drink had to be supplied. And it was a major social faux pas uh, that there was failure in this regard. And this is really, again, still the case in many uh, third world, so-called third world countries. Um, I have a number of Nigerian friends where one of the weddings, they actually do three of them in Nigeria. One of the weddings requires an enormous party and, uh, and it goes for multiple days and, and can be quite costly. Uh, so, so failing to provide wine is a, sort of a mortal insult, quite frankly, in, in the time of Jesus. So it's a, it's a big deal. Um, it's a big gathering. It goes on and on. It can be three to three to seven days. Interestingly, the presumption here, and, and Luther doesn't agree with this, but the presumption here is that the family providing the wedding um, are relatively well to do because it talks about the servants. People did not have servants uh, unless they were fairly wealthy. And so it's a double gaffe to have run out of wine. Uh, in the case of a relatively well-to-do family um, celebrating the wedding of uh, their son and and daughter-in-law. Now, Jesus has been invited to the wedding, but John mentions first for us that the mother of Jesus was there, and then Jesus, and then his disciples. 
is and I I don't know if the text tells us specifically, but is does it seem that the that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is the one who kind of knows this family well, and then Jesus and the disciples are invited in concert with her? Yeah, that's a good question. Presumably so. Um, it may well be that Mary, who, by the way, is never named in John's gospel, yeah. right? She's just the mother of Jesus. Um, but Mary uh, is is perhaps the power behind the kitchen at this particular wedding. Hence, she is the one who knows right away that they're in trouble over the amount of wine that's available and comes to Jesus. Mm. Um, So it could well be that there's a close relationship there. We don't know exactly where Cana is, um, but it's, it's one of two possible places as far as we know. Um, One of them about four miles northeast of Nazareth, the other place about nine miles northeast of of Nazareth. Mm. Um, So they could well have had relatives in Cana uh, of Galilee. Mm. Okay, so so Mary, and like you said, the mother of Jesus, that's how she's named in John's gospel. She's there, Jesus is there invited, and he's got his disciples with him. The wine runs out, as you said. Mary is the one who is alerted to this, and then she alerts Jesus. So let's let's start talking about this interaction between Jesus and his mother. Mary comes to Jesus and says, "They have no wine," which always kind of struck me a little bit because she doesn't actually tell him to do anything. She just informs him of the situation, and Jesus right. then has a, a response that maybe, at least in our minds, like, "Wait a second, Jesus, that sounds a little harsh." So. Talk about this first inter- interaction between Mary and Jesus. Yeah, so Mary uh, doesn't prescribe any action to her son. Um, and most mothers would certainly uh, feel the ability to prescribe certain actions on the part of their children. She is reticent, apparently, to do that, and, and rightfully so. Uh, so all she says is they have no wine or they have not wine even. Uh, and so, uh, it's quite sparse. Uh, it's not demanding. It's simply the statement of a fact. It's not telling him to do anything. And his response, um, isn't disrespectful. Sometimes we take this woman, et cetera, uh, to be disrespectful. I suppose if we answered our mothers this way, we might get a, a swift slap in the cheek. <laughs> <laughs> but, but this was not the case in the first century. Uh, you have the same kind of speech uh, with the Samaritan woman at the well. Mm. Um, and then again, uh, when Jesus uh, hands Mary over to John, his beloved disciple, while on the cross dying, um, he just calls her woman. Um, so it's not a disrespectful thing. And even in this case of the, of the handing over to John, uh, she, he's concerned about her future welfare, especially her spiritual welfare um, after his passing. Uh, so, so, so it's not, you wouldn't take this to be negative. And yet, on the other hand, um, it's quite terse. What is this to me and to you? Hmm. I mean, this is, and and I think most commentators, I know Luther thinks this, uh, that that he's making a very clear distinction 
Um, he has an earthly family. Yes, of course. He's responsible to his mother as a son. Yes, of course. But now we're talking about the fulfillment of his ministry and the priorities of his heavenly father must come first. And of course, that's why you get uh, not yet has come my hour. Mm. Um, so he's really focused now on uh, his ultimate goal, that is to suffer and die for the sins of the world, to offer himself on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which we've already been introduced to in the first chapter of John. Uh, so he's trying to split the difference. He's being respectful to his mother, yes, but he's also extremely clear with her that his mission to save the world is his number one priority and that's what he's focused on here and now at this wedding. So, I mean, in that sense, the way Jesus speaks to his mother here is not terribly different than the way Jesus spoke to Mary and Joseph, both as a 12-year-old in the temple, which Luke records for us. When You know, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house or about my father's business? And then, of course, Luke Luke tells us they didn't understand it, but Jesus did go down and was submissive to them. So you it seems like you have that similar similar interaction happening here with Jesus and Mary, the respect certainly for his mother, but also a reminder that he's not only here to be her son in the sense that, you know, you and I are, are sons of our mothers, but rather he is he is here to be about his father's business to save the world. Correct. And maybe it's the parallel there is the two kingdoms, you know, uh, in the kingdom of the left, he has to be obedient to his parents in the kingdom of the right, uh, he must obey God rather than men uh, and be about the business of proclaiming uh, his mission and fulfilling it. Mm. So Mary has brought this need to Jesus. She hasn't told him what to do. Jesus has responded respectfully to his own mother and yet a reminder of what he is here to do. We're going to keep looking at this text as it finishes from there on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Scott Murray this morning about John chapter 2. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, January 16th. We're studying John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11 with the Reverend Dr. Scott Murray. He serves at Memorial Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas. 
Pastor Murray, prior to the break, we were talking about this initial interaction between Jesus and his mother. Mary has told Jesus there's no more wine. Jesus has responded respectfully, woman, what does this have to do with me? And then the way he he says it, my hour has not yet come. This is a, a language that we will hear continued through John's gospel. Jesus will speak about his hour. What is he telling Mary when he says, my hour has not yet come? At bottom, this business of his hour um, is really about his crucifixion. Um, so that's the ultimate goal of his ministry. Um, so you have this word that uh, later in John 12, where Jesus um, predicts his death, the fact that he will be lifted up, which is a figure of speech for crucifixion. Um, and he says, then, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name, and so on. So the very glory of God is at stake. Um, and that glory is shown forth in the humiliation of the cross and its suffering. And that's what Jesus is thinking about as uh, his ministry begins with this sort of momentous wedding occasion uh, where, where he's really talking about himself as the bridegroom who will give up his life out of love for his bride, the church. Um, and so all of that is in the background. Sometimes people take this to mean the hour of the beginning of his ministry as though he doesn't want to get started on this or he's hesitating or something. And I don't, I, given the context of John's gospel, the hour is pretty clearly uh, the, the three days of, of uh, suffering, death, and resurrection. But it, I mean, given the fact that he does end up doing this sign, it doesn't seem that he's telling her, no, I'm not going to do anything either. There's just a, a clarification perhaps for Mary to make sure she understands what's really going on here. Yeah. I mean, it is the time of Jesus that's important, yeah. not Mary's presumed uh, goals uh, for him. Um, you have it elsewhere in the gospels where, um, you know, you get the great crowds and, and uh, Jesus you know, is worn out by this and goes off by himself early in the morning. And Peter's running around trying to find him, you know, hey, there's crowds. And, you know, uh, you're making us look bad, Jesus, if you don't come back and continue the healing game. And of course, Jesus won't have any part of that because his ministry is something bigger and larger. He's not, I mean, the, the wedding of Cana isn't just a cool parlor trick. It's not just, uh, uh, you know, the vintner's uh, dream. Uh, of creating wine out of water. It, it's something much deeper and much more significant. And he's telling his mother this as well, that it's intimately tied to who he is uh, as the Messiah and his ultimate goal, his hour of suffering and dying and providing from his own sign, side mm. the wine of his blood mm. and water. Mm. So Mary hears the response of her son, and in verse 5, she then speaks to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Talk about this response from Mary. Yeah, again, she's, she's requiring nothing except that the, the servants would do precisely what he tells them to do. And in that sense, you have this wonderful expectation. Luther um, makes a big deal of the fact 
and it's typical Luther, and, and I think there's some something to it, um, that that Mary comes to Jesus with emptiness. They have not. And what does she expect from Jesus? The something to make up for the have not. And he says, Luther says, that this is true faith at work, that it comes to God uh, under the burden of crosses and trials and says, I've got nothing. I'm in trouble. I'm at the end of my rope, dear Lord. Only you are the one who can resolve this. And this is what she's saying. Um, and then she's, she is enlisting the help of the, um, of the servants and requiring of them obedience uh, to, to this one who will speak to them. And of course, in his speaking, all things come to be. Hmm. Well, so thinking about the role that Mary plays in these first few verses, I mean, I she does seem to to stand as an example of of what faith looks like that she she has this need you know there's no wine and so she she takes that to Jesus rightly so without demanding what he must or must not do he hear she hears his response it seems in faith and then responds to the servants just do what he says like i mean both of those things seem like very exam, excellent examples for us as christians that when we have a need we would take it to the lord and then we would receive whatever he says in, in faith and then do that. Right. Well, and, and of course, too, um, the servants are, uh, uh, are diakonoi. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are um, ministers, so to speak. Um, and even Luther will, will make some points about this, that it's a sign of the ministry of the word that takes uh, the commands of Jesus and does what he says to deliver his blessed gifts to his people. In this particular case, the wine of gladness, uh, uniting the bridegroom, God, and his his church, the bride. Hmm. All right, so we've got Mary who's brought the problem to Jesus. Jesus has responded with a reminder of why he is here to go to the hour of his crucifixion and his glorification. Mary then has told the servants, do what he says. And now John continues the, the narrative. He, he begins to describe these big, big stone water jars. They're used for Jewish rites of purification. And then Jesus says, fill them with water. And you mentioned this earlier, Pastor Murray, they filled them to the brim. So to talk mm-hmm. about what Jesus is doing here as he begins, we call this a miracle. John calls it a sign. I know we'll talk about that in a little bit. But talk about how Jesus begins to, to set the scene and help. Sure. So, I mean, first of all, the stone water jars are uniquely um, beneficial for Jewish rites of external ritual cleansing. Um, Only they could be used because there was no chance of contamination of the water in them, whereas a terracotta jar uh, was thought to be able to be contaminated. Um, so it's definitely um, jars that were there for the, the ritual washings. Um, and, you know, they're going to hold somewhere in the range of, you know, I don't know, 120 gallons of water. They're significant uh, water receptacles. Um, and part of this, too, is is a recognition of the amount of water that might have been needed for a large wedding party, Um uh, for ritual washing. So, so all of that is in mind here. 
What's Je what is Jesus doing? He's demanding that the uh, signs of Jewish ritual washing be filled completely up, indicating that there's no more to be crammed in there. Um, it is. It is. It has completed its full purpose, and now he's going to turn it around and make use of it um, in a heightened way, so that um, there's a great improvement um, in the way God is dealing with His people now in the New Testament. Luther, of course, makes a big deal of the fact that that this is more a gospel way than a law way. Um, and there may be something to that as well. But, but certainly he is, um, um, as in a way, a new Moses, uh, but, but a better Moses in the sense that he's a gospel uh, bringer, uh, turning around these ritual washings so that they can be of use for uh, the fellowship of God's people with with him, the Son of God, with, with the you know these rites of purification, and the way you were talking earlier about Jesus is the true bridegroom in this text. Thinking about the way Saint Paul writes in Ephesians five about how Jesus cleanses his church, the bride, to to make her free from spot or blemish or any such thing, is is there maybe a connection there too that that as Jesus makes use of these and he fills them to the brim so that the the old ways you know are being fulfilled in Jesus? Now he is showing that he is here as the the true purification, the true cleansing, and he's doing that for his bride, the church. Right. I, and I think there's kind of a cool pun to be used here for the preachers. He fills full the stone jars to fulfill the promise of the Old Testament with himself. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. So he fills full the jars to fulfill the promise of himself. I think you said it more eloquently than, than that, but that's the, the basic idea. Okay, so Jesus has, has instructed the servants to fill these jars to the brim with water. They've done so. So we're talking 120 gallons plus of water at this point. And then Jesus continues his instructions to these servants. Talk about how, how things progress. So you get these instructions uh, from, the, from Jesus to the servants. Um, so, um, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. You know, so you get, he tells them what to do, and then it says that they did it. Mm -hmm. um, th there's, there's kind of a cool repeat there. So it emphasizes uh, the fact that, that what Jesus told them had both affect and effect. Um, these servants did immediately what they were asked to do. So, um, so that repeat, I think, is, is very helpful. Uh, they, of course, draw the water as he himself tells them to do, and they take it to the uh, leader of the feast. Um, uh, some commentators, again, make the point that, it, that um, this would have been a significant enough wedding to have reclining guests, um, and uh, the toastmaster would have been at the head of a three-sided table, a triclinium, literally. Um, and so, so again, there does seem to be some opulence uh, in this particular case. Um, but then he tastes it and is like wowed because we've got um, 
Chateau Lafitte Rothschild, you know, um, 1958 or something, uh, some fantastic gift of wine mm. uh, to to this uh, wedding feast. Mm. So, um, and, if I if I can, Pastor Murray, just a couple yeah, of please. questions there, and, and these are maybe questions that the text. I don't know that the text answers this one, but I am curious. Sometimes we we see in Jesus miracles or his signs that it, it, it's obvious how he does it. You know, so sometimes he'll touch. Sometimes he will will speak. In in this text, there's no like he doesn't ever quote say become wine or something like that. Should we understand that Jesus does this simply by his his word, by his command that he gives to draw the the water and take it to the master of the feast? That's what I think. That that um, his miracle, his sign was affected um, when he commanded. Uh, the servants to draw and take the liquid uh, to the master of the feast. Mm. Um, you know, his intention was being fulfilled. What he asked them to do was done. And in that way, the servants become the hands of Jesus. They become the hands of the Messiah, uh, bringing this wonderful gift, this uniting, this fellowship with God, uh, to the master of the feast. So I, I, and again, you can see why Luther will, will perhaps want to say that those diaconoi um, are, are indeed our pastors who have drawn the water and bring us something far greater than what they think they're drawing. And the other question I had was the, as the ESV puts it, the master of the feast, or you've called him the toast master. Uh, who, who is this person? How should we understand his role in, 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 at the wedding and then in this account? Right. So he's, um, he's probably somebody's uncle. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, you know, in, in ancient feasting traditions, the toast master had control uh, over the wine in the sense that, like at the Symposia of Plato, at the beginning, there's this discussion about how much water needs to be added to it. And it depended on how sensible the discussion uh, was supposed to be. Um, you know, if they, if they wanted it to be really sensible, then it was two-thirds parts water. Mm. So, uh, so this is what the, the uh, Toastmaster or the, the, uh, the master of the feast um, is about is determining uh, how watered the wine would be. Um, and perhaps he's been a bit profligate in the sense that um, he decided that it would be a rip-roaring party and, and cut down drastically on the amount of water that everyone expected to be used. Who knows? Maybe that's mm. the reason that there is insufficient wine. Mm. Okay, so he's he's in charge of the the partying, the wine in particular, and watering it down to the needed degree as he sees fit. The servants take this water that's now become wine. The evangelist makes that plain to us. The master doesn't know where it came from. The servants do. This toastmaster tastes it, and as you said, he's wowed completely. You you named some wine that I'm sure is a very fine wine. I, I'm not a connoisseur by any means, but that's what he's tasting. And so he calls the bridegroom, and he's got words for the bridegroom. Uh, talk about what the toastmaster says to the bridegroom. Right. So um, he says to the bridegroom that most people— uh, serve the better wine. And then when palates are anesthetized, 
then he brings out the worst wine and no one sort of is any the wiser. Um, and, I, you know, we can't find any instructions uh, about this particular practice in ancient literature. But um, I myself uh, do enjoy a good bottle of wine in a festive occasion. And I do exactly this. I will put the best wine on the table at first. And then as the dinner progresses, then uh, lesser quality wines. And it's just simply a question of, of the palate is anesthetized by the first bottle or two. And you don't really notice the difference as you progress in the dinner party. And this is what this is what he's amazed about. He can still tell that it, this is high quality wine, shockingly good, um, and that other people don't do it this way. Um, now, again, in the context of the relation between Jesus and his people, what do you get? You get the worst wine first. It's called the Old Testament. And then you have the best wine last when what was promised in the Old Testament comes to its full fruition in the person of God's son, who is here now offering the very best at last. And so we now inaugurate uh, the messianic kingdom. Um, and we are set then in the last days because this feast is, is bringing at last at the end uh, the better wine. So the when the Toastmaster speaks to the bridegroom here, you know, he, he says something that, as you said, from our experience, makes sense. This is the way you probably would do this and the way that it's still done today in, in many circles. But he as it as as it functions within this text, he's probably saying more than he realizes. This is a maybe an unwitting sermon that the Toastmaster is giving here. Sure. Not unlike Caiaphas, you know, yeah. that one man should die for the people. Um, so John, John's gospel, John latches on to this. And, and I think um, is sort of chuckling to himself as he writes it down. Well, of course, the best is for last. Um, this is the eternal son of the father um, uh, offering perfect wine for his people. Um, I, it's really, I'd never watched It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, and I watched it over the Christmas season for the first time. And at one point, um, uh, George Bailey takes a bottle of wine to the home of someone who's, who's taken a loan from the savings and loan in his town uh, as a way of showing unity and celebration with this family with a new lovely home. And, and I, I couldn't help but think of, of John's gospel uh, in that particular case. So this is what Jesus is doing, the very best wine for last, because it is the New Testament. And as you, you said from the, from the outset, with this is we're seeing God feasting with his people. There are plenty of places in the Old Testament in which this is spoken of. I think of, well, at least I, I usually associate this as a funeral text, but it fits well here from Isaiah 25, where Isaiah talks about the feast of rich food and of well-aged wine. And the, the prophet Amos, in, at the very end of his book, talks about the mountains dripping with sweet wine. And so we, we see Jesus doing that quite literally here in John 2. Sure. And you also have the, the image of the, of the, the, uh, the vineyard yeah. um, with, with the grapes that are abounding, and we can wash our clothes. There's so much 
good wine that we can wash our clothing in wine um, and have them come out clean, uh, which I do think begins to give us um, something of the picture of wine as blood um, bringing cleansing, despite the fact that both wine yeah. and blood are some of the most sustaining liquids in the world. And yet the, the very blood of Jesus, the wine of this feasting, um, brings cleanness for God's people. Mm. Now, as John concludes this account, he, he says that this is the first of Jesus' signs, and he did it at Cana in Galilee, and in this way Jesus manifested his glory. John, I think regularly in his gospel, he does not speak of these acts of Jesus as miracles or powers, as you might hear in, in the synoptic gospels. He always calls them signs. What's, what is the significance of John calling them signs? Sure. So, uh, for John, signs are the things that God does by his speech. So it's, it's the things that happen um, in the speech of God. Um, so there's a very strong connection between um, the Christ as God's representative on earth and then uh, these wonderful fulfilling uh, actions that reveal himself, it reveals him um, to to his people, um, and so it's really uh, it's it's a, a poignant word, the signs of Jesus in the in John's gospel, uh, and and it really is is a powerful thing. But it's it's his glory, his doxa, uh, worked out by actions in service to God's people and delivered together with God's word. Mm. Talk more about that, that word, doxa, glory, as, you, as it's translated here. This is Jesus manifesting his glory. We've, we've heard this word in John chapter 1 already in the, the prologue. John said that the, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Here we have that word glory again. This is another important word for John. Talk about how it's being used here. What does it mean that Jesus is manifesting his glory? Yeah, throughout John, the doxa, the glory, um, either obliquely or directly points to the cross and death of Christ. Um, so uh, all of this is our, uh, is the manifestation of God's glory. Uh, what is that? It is the suffering and death of the eternal son as the lamb of God, taking away the sin of the world. And we, we almost always, when you say glory, you're thinking of glitz and glitter and bombast and, you know, explosions and, and God firing off rockets and so on. And really, especially in John's gospel, um, his glory is manifested. And it's interesting, the word manifest in Greek doesn't show up very much in, in uh, secular Greek literature. It does all the time in the Bible. But this manifestation of God's glory is also a manifestation hidden under weakness and suffering and self-offering. And, and of course, that's exactly what you have here, where Jesus is very kind of, he's in the background, um, he's ordering the servants, but he doesn't troop out there and say, hey, look what I did. Uh, you get none of that. You still get the humility, the hiddenness um, of the person of the Christ, um, even in this uh, hill country uh, uh, wedding affair that that he has gone to. Well, and like you said, this isn't in terms of a, a 
publicity stunt or something like that. It's certainly not that because John was was clear to tell us that the master of the feast didn't know anything about where this wine had come from. Presumably the the bridegroom doesn't either. The servants do know, and and Mary, I assume, probably found out. And John makes the point at the end then that it's his disciples who believed in him. So this this sign, at least in this context, serves to, to strengthen faith in Jesus for his disciples. Right. And of course, interestingly, there's no record of the reaction of the servants who knew exactly what had happened. And you would have expected John to say, and by the way, the servants were really wowed and they thought Jesus had to be the son of God, but you don't get that. All you get is this reference to his disciples um, and, and their belief in him, uh, which ends up to be kind of a growing, struggling, back and forth thing uh, throughout the gospel. And, and again, only confirmed at his resurrection and at the giving of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Right. I mean, we'll, we'll see this kind of back and forth thing happen throughout the gospel. I, I think forward to the, the feeding of the 5,000, which is a, a wonderful sign. And a lot of people do see that one, but many people get the wrong idea about Jesus from that sign. They want to make him into their bread king. And, you know, so Jesus will go into this discourse about him being the bread of life. And by the end of it, people have walked away from him. You know what right. I mean? So, so the signs here, are, it's, it's, maybe we, we don't always think about it like this. We think, oh, if someone sees a sign, that surely that's going to convince them. It doesn't tend to work that way here in the Gospels. This is a, one that's strengthening the faith of the disciples, and we're not told really anything about the servants or anybody else as to what they think of it. Or even Mary. Yeah. I mean, presumably her faith would have been strengthened, but John didn't bother to tell us that. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So she and she's the one that, that brought it up in the first place. But it is his disciples then who are believing in him, and and their faith. We will see it grow and mature. We're going to see them not get it many a time. But as you said, uh, the resurrection, the giving of the of the spirit that is coming to to seal that for them. Got about a minute here left, Pastor Murray. Help us to wrap things up. How do we see our, our crucified and risen Savior in this text? Through his self giving in offering the Old Testament promises of God filling up completely uh, with this fine wine, uh, uh, the stone water jars of Old Testament promise, um, maybe even Old Testament legalism, and it all gets translated into something that unites with God, um, supports the church uh, through the forgiveness of sins, points uh, forward to the blood poured out, and, and perhaps also the Eucharistic presence, which was the normal uh, understanding and practice of the church when John is writing this. Um, so uh, it's the first shot in a war, and uh, the rest of John tells us the story of the, the back and forth till there is triumph. The Reverend Dr. Scott Murray is pastor at Memorial Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas. He's also the third vice president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, helping us today to study John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Pastor Murray, thanks for being our guest today. Always a pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about John chapter 2 or any of the gospel according to St. John, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.